1: It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show, where our mission is to serve you and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. What a question. How many supplements or dietary or herbal remedies do you take every day? Most of us do take one or several or a whole boatload of them. Do you know that they're really unregulated? And there's things you got to know about when you can trust and when you can't trust what's on the label of that dietary supplement or herbal remedy you're taking. And later, how about finally some good news on the financial front? I have some good news about the second most expensive thing in our lives, what we spend on our vehicles. So the thing with dietary supplements and herbal remedies, is it's pretty much a thing of trust. And unfortunately, independent study after independent study finds that that trust is being broken, that when the ingredients are analyzed for herbal remedies and dietary supplements, almost always they don't have what the label says they have. And they might have other things the label doesn't mention. So you think you're taking one thing and you're ending up with something else. And there are any of a number of reasons why this happens. It's just a fact that it does happen. Because the Congress, in its wisdom, about a generation and a half ago, made the decision to allow herbal remedies and dietary supplements to basically be free market free of any government oversight, regulation, or control. That's a different thing than with prescription meds. It was kind of a reaction to how the FDA is a really, really slow, deliberate bureaucracy that seems to take forever to ever say a med is okay to be taken. And so the cost of prescription meds are much, much higher because the FDA gauntlet is so extremely difficult. And so what happens is the FDA system came about because of problems long ago with prescription meds not being what they said they were and having really bad consequences for people. And as happens, something that starts for a good reason ends up being really, really a bureaucratic morass and that's what the FDA is in many cases now I think about the frustration people have had where somebody may be dying and some uh, doctors trying to get permission to use a drug that's still going through the different phases of testing that may have negative effects that could kill the dying person but also might be the one thing that could save the dying person and how difficult it is through the exception policy to get that in use so there's a reason why the congress reacted like it did with the dietary supplements and herbal remedies and saying oh well we're just going to let you see what whatever happens with that happens so what has happened is all the problems with the lying on the labels but there are two Industry organizations that are out there that legit players in herbal remedies and dietary supplements will submit their stuff for testing to validate that what's on the label is actually what's in it. And it's USP and NSF. And if you go to mainstream sellers of herbal remedies and dietary supplements, you'll see. Most of the products on their shelves, I won't say 100%, will have been through one of these two bodies. And you'll be able to look at the label, and it will say somewhere on it it will have USP or NSF. And so you can be, be confident that that thing you're taking will actually have in it what it says on the label which is really important because you never know when you could have an adverse medical effect or event from who knows what being in it or that you're not getting what you hope to out of that herbal remedy or dietary supplement because it doesn't have in it what it says it has on the label that you think is going to help you. And I take, I guess vitamins also come in this general category and I take uh, vitamin D each day. There's one my uh, primary care doctor put me on that. I take a generic of something called, I'm going to mess this up. It's like CoQ10 or something. You're nodding your head, yeah. Krista. Yep.
0: Because you're even probably know. on cholesterol meds or something. Yeah. yeah. What is that statin, supposed to do for me? It's supposed to prevent, I, I do not know for sure, but from my understanding, it can prevent heart issues that could be associated with statins, but I may be wrong. Okay. I am not so anyway, to being so, a doctor. So
1: it's a pill like the size. You know when they call a pill a horse pill? Mm-hmm. I mean that thing is gigantic. And thank goodness there are generics of it at my favorite warehouse clubs. And I take another one. I don't remember what the other is I take. Every day, I should know that. But you take a lot, a lot of these things every day. I right? take,
0: well, like I definitely take several, but my MD, integrative doctor, but she's an MD, um, recommends the ones and knows what I'm taking. And so I do price them. I don't buy them from her, but I price them out and they all have those labels on them. So I make sure that it's the right stuff and they seem to work well.
1: So when you go to a doctor or a specialist and they have on those forms, which why we're still filling them out by hand, In 22, I don't understand. I mean, medicine, it is a modern era. Anyway, when you are filling out their endless paperwork with a pen, ridiculous. Anyway, make sure you list the herbal remedies and dietary supplements you take in addition to the prescription meds you take. Because even though you may have a doc who rolls his or her eyes that you're taking these things, Don't hide that information from them because it may be important in terms of whatever they might have you take because of whatever condition you're there seeing them for.
0: I bring mine in a bag. If I go to like a specialist doctor or someone else I haven't seen, I bring my my vitamin B supplement, my D, like all the things I take.
1: So I have in my phone, I have a file where I have all the medicines I take and herbal remedies. And the dosages of each.
0: Oh, very good. That's smarter.
1: So, so that so that I always know when I go to fill out the forms, I don't forget this, that, or the other.
0: Yep. We'll go to some questions now. This is from Alex in Florida. My wife and I have four kids, 17, 13, 12, and six, and have outgrown our current home with the opportunity to build our dream home. We purchased the land in 2020 in Northeast Florida, almost nine acres, and our budget is 800000 Should we go forward with our plans or keep saving and wait to see what this market does? Thank you in advance. And P.S., I try to be cheap like you, but my wife won't allow me to fully commit.
1: Okay, I love that. (laughs) So um, the interesting thing is you have a 17-year-old who soon is going to probably fly away from the nest, and so you're actually going to need a little less space probably than you think you're going to need, but... There's an advantage to waiting for the economy to slow a bit. As we know, construction materials available of construction subcontractors, the generals, they're all under intense demand right now. And the supply shortages have caused the cost of a lot of building materials to go way, way, way up. What the subs are bidding things out is much higher in this really intense housing market than it is in a normal housing market. And the odds are really strong that we are going to see the housing market come out of the rarefied, intense environment it is to a more moderate kind of normalized housing market. So if I'm right about that, it means that the cost of both the labor and materials for construction will become more favorable as we move through this economic cycle we're uh, about to go into. So if you could be later rather than sooner, I think you're going to see an advantage to that.
0: This is from Colin in Virginia, kind of similar uh, topic. You recently gave advice to a 28-year-old wanting to purchase his forever home for $750,000. You analyzed the situation and you made a comment that Florida is the most expensive state to live in. How can that be compared to Alaska, Hawaii, California, Oregon? I love listening to your program, but you lost me on this one. There is no way Florida can be more expensive than those other states. Keep up the good work and giving great advice 99% of the time.
1: So, Colleen, I was shocked about that report that said that as well. That was not my data there was a report that came out recently about how expensive Florida has become. So, there are two factors that have made the average cost of all in home ownership more expensive in Florida than other places. One is there's been a big, big gallop upward in housing costs in the state of Florida since 2019, and they've accelerated in Florida. More than I think anywhere else, but the state of Utah, I think is the state that's actually had the greatest increase in the cost of housing. Uh, But in Florida, because of so many of the homes being at the coast or within miles of the coast, the cost of insuring a home has become sky high. And the total cost of home ownership is what we're talking about here. So is the data correct or just a headline? Don't know because you know others are going to come out with studies and say, no, 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 the most expensive place to live is blah, blah, blah. But it's just a point for me to make to that 28-year-old that owning a home in Florida is not just the cost of the home as anywhere else. It's everything else involved in it. And as a part-time Florida resident, I can tell you the homeowner's insurance is really expensive. I pay nine times the cost to insure my home in Florida as I do elsewhere. And so it is a really, really significant expense.
0: And from Rick in Arizona, Clark, I had a credit card that I stopped using. I didn't even activate the most recent card they sent. Then I received my monthly statement with an $89 annual fee. I called them, and since they could not offer me anything, I canceled the card. My credit score dropped over 100 points. The $89 was reported as delinquent. The annual fee is going a going-forward fee, isn't it? If so, why should I owe it when the card and account was closed, and now what do I do?
1: Rick, okay, this is, this is a mess. So when you have a card, credit card with an annual fee, and you're like, you know what, this card really doesn't fit in my life. They give you normally at most credit card issuers, they give you a courtesy notice that the following month you're going to be billed for your annual fee. And you only have a grace period there to go ahead and cancel the card before the annual fee posts, which is if you think about what happens with credit card charges, they're posted after the fact. So you're you're billed the annual fee by, I think, all issuers. There may be an exception somewhere. You're charged the annual fee in uh, what they refer to as an arrears. The, the charge already took place, and you're only paying the bill in your next billing cycle. So as brutal as this is to say, please don't get mad at me, you need to pay them the $89 fee because, and whatever interest, if any, it has accrued, because otherwise this can demolish your credit score for years to come. And with any annual fee card, if you decide, don't react to saying, I don't want that card anymore. You have to act and be prepared to terminate it before the annual fee posts, because otherwise, Even if you decide that card's out of your life, if it's past too late and it's already posted, I guess just keep the card for another year. Make sure you've got on your electronic calendar or paper one when that comes up for renewal again and that you cancel it before that point.
0: We did cancel it already for him.
1: Yeah, I know. It's too late. That's why I said for you, Rick, it's past too late. You just got to suck it up. Pay the $89 and be done with them and hope that the damage to your credit is very limited by the fact that you now will have paid that off. You may even be able to negotiate that they remove that delinquent mark by you paying them that money because someday they might want to have you back as a customer and as a customer accommodation that they would hoping to get you back would go ahead and remove it from your credit report. That's not as long a shot as you might think. Well, sorry about that bad news, but coming up ahead, I have some inklings of pretty positive information coming on the car front. The news is starting to get better bit by bit.
0: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it?
1: We as Americans have shown ourselves to be making generally pretty smart decisions in the car market. We've had this massive run-up in the cost of used cars for reasons that are so many, but the quick highlights, what happened with the rental car companies depleting their fleets in 2020, and then as people started traveling again having to scramble to buy whatever inventory they could, which was principally used cars, and they drove the cost of used cars up by massive amounts by creating this huge wave of demand when the new vehicles weren't being made in anywhere near normal numbers because of the chip shortage and the factory shutdowns because of COVID. And the uh, new vehicle manufacturers, they're all reporting different things. Some of them are getting their arms around the part shortages and they're getting vehicles produced again, others still having terrible, terrible problems, way under producing capacity. And that continues to put price pressures in the new vehicle market and then by reflection in the used vehicle market. The good news, is that the used vehicle market is starting to get a little, little cheaper. The huge run-ups, it's like we've run way up the roller coaster, we've crested, and we've come down just a touch, and we're still a good ways away from the prices being back to historical norms. But this will correct. I mean, the pandemic was so disruptive on so many levels that it just doesn't get better in an instant. But Americans, I said, you've made really smart decisions because the average age of a vehicle on the road now in the United States is the longest ever recorded in statistics. Americans are saying, hey, wait, that new vehicle costs that much? That newer used vehicle is a zillion dollars? You know, that vehicle I'm tired of here in the driveway, it's looking a whole lot better right now. I think I'm going to go take it to the car wash instead of getting rid of it. People have made that decision one by one. And guess what they found out? Vehicles are so much more reliable than they used to be. Incredibly more reliable. Maybe yours isn't, but overall, they really are. So people have been able to avoid. Having those huge monthly payments that you have with a new vehicle or a really new used car, where you have a massive check you got to write every month, payment you got to make month after month, year after year after year. When you have a vehicle that is paid for, I want you to think about it. You got your existing vehicle that's paid for, and you got this new one or new to you one that you're all excited about. Now, the new one, that's the one you want to have. That's your prom date. But prom dates are expensive, right? The one you already got, you've paid for it. And yeah, from time to time, there'll be an oops. It needs this repair or that or the other. But almost always, that's much, much cheaper than what you're facing with ongoing payments. Those ongoing payments create the second biggest hole in your budget every month out of your paycheck. So this is actually a good result of a terrible circumstance. First, the pandemic, the horrific loss of life we've had, the economic disruptions, what it's done with the vehicle market, the fact that people have adjusted and we adjust as humans and adjusted to keeping our vehicles longer is actually a good thing for your personal finances, Krista. So the first
0: question is related. This is from Graham, and he says, "Hi, Clark. I'm 25 years old and looking to buy a used car for the first time. I am a first time car buyer. Period. I have researched some cars, and the cost is around ten 000 to thirteen thousand dollars list price. I have around fifty k in savings and a FICO wow. score of seven ninety one. Twenty five years
1: old has fifty thousand in savings and has a nearly eight hundred credit score.
0: Yep." Uh, What I would like to know is, should I buy the car outright with cash, or should I finance the car to build up my credit history? I'm currently renting and don't have any future plans to buy a house within
1: three years. Graham, there's no upside in your circumstance with as much savings as you have, with the savings earning nearly uh, 0.0%, for you to take out a loan. Your credit score already is solid as could be at 791 and that's on the FICO scale. In the situation you're in, just write that check, be done. But when you're at the dealership, do not tell them you're paying cash till you've made a deal on the price of the vehicle. And any used vehicle you're going to buy, you need to have as a condition of purchase that you can have it inspected by a mechanic of your choosing, or you buy at a place like CarMax or Carvana that gives you a right to return for a full refund for any reason within a period of time and you can have it inspected during that time because used cars have histories sometimes they're great sometimes they're not and if you look at the sticker on the window you'll see in it on it it says pretty clearly that the salesperson the dealers allowed to lie to you all they want and all that matters is that you signed your name to paperwork that says you bought it in whatever condition it really is in that's why you must have it inspected by a mechanic and keep handling money so beautifully.
0: And from Kyle in Iowa, help me understand varying credit scores. I recently applied for a mortgage in my name only, and the disclosures listed in my three scores as 786, 790, and 796. With, on Credit Karma and the Experian app, my scores are 829, 815, and 812, respectively. It says in the report, my balance limit ratio is too high. Experian tells me my ratio is 6%, and that seems pretty good to me. What
1: gives? All right, so first of all, Kyle, your scores are phenomenal. And at above 760 on a mortgage credit report, you're qualifying for the absolute best loan rates there are. You're way above 760. Um, So you are as prime a borrower as there could be. People want to take a risk on you because your risk profile is basically non-existent. You're so perfect with how you handle money. The difference. A lot of times when you see the scores like you're seeing from Experian, from Credit Karma, they're based on something called a Vantage score, which is a different scoring method from what you have with FICO. As an example, my FICO scores are higher than my um, Vantage scores. It just depends on your exact individual credit profile, which formula makes you look better. But in either case, just like with me, even though my FICO is higher than my Vantage, all my scores are great scores and yours are too. Credit scores are a snapshot of how your credit looks with one bureau, one method, one scoring organization at a time so we have zillions of different credit scores what you're looking for is the general range you're in now let's go to that crazy comment where it said your balance to limit ratio is too high that's just a garbage statement you know when you're less than 850 it just defaults to tell you something about why your score is not 850 And most of the time, when somebody has a really high score as you, just ignore whatever it says, because basically it means nothing. What is important is you're handling credit so well.
0: And this is from Mara in Georgia. Hi, Clark. I've negotiated a new job start date for September, and I'm debating whether to quit earlier and take time off in between. My main concern is health insurance. COBRA is ridiculously expensive, I have no medical conditions, I'm healthy, and have kept up to date with all my doctor appointments. This really is a just-in-case scenario. I've heard of catastrophe insurance and wanted to get your thoughts and advice.
1: So there's a controversial type of insurance where you can get a temporary policy to bridge you from your old job to your new one that is very limited coverage. It will be very inexpensive for you to buy. You can search for it online online and know that you're getting something that is a poor equivalent of traditional health coverage as long as you're playing a bit of the odds. So you buy one of these uh, temporary policies, they're sold typically in 90 day cycles, and that works pretty well for your situation. You buy one of these for a 90 day, you're gonna be fine. Now the other crazy thing with Cobra is people will play that as a game as well. You have a period of time when you leave your existing job to exercise your COBRA rights. You've got weeks and weeks and weeks. They'll send you a notification. They'll tell you you must exercise your COBRA rights by a certain date. And there are people who play that game where they wait. And if something happens to you during the time you're eligible to exercise COBRA rights, then you pay the outrageous Premiums, which is 102% of the cost for your employer-provided health coverage where you are, and you get to find out what it actually costs for your employer to insure you beyond what part they charge you, the rest is all coming out of the employer's pocket, and it's a crazy amount of money. And so you could wait and execute that if it became necessary. Either is a fine way for you to bridge either in the case of COBRA, most of the time till September, in the case of one of these emergency or temporary policies, having coverage that pretends to insure you and you pretend to pay a premium. And I call it pretend, pretend, because the premium you're paying is really tiny and the benefit you get is really not that great. So you just got to make that decision based on your circumstance and your historical instinct as a gambler, and your health track record. And I want to tell you, that's it for us today. I hope if you've enjoyed this podcast, you'll share it with others. Let them know what we're up to. And if you feel like it and you enjoy what we do, why don't you review us on social media or with the actual podcast source itself.
0: Most people are on Apple Podcasts that listen statistically.
1: And it's pretty easy to review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us. Thank you so much. Have a great day.